0: In your uh, program this morning is an insert that says Vision Next Property Update at the top. We've been sharing with you about a piece of land that we've been negotiating on. We're happy, pleased, exhilarated this morning to announce that our offer was accepted. And we purchased uh, just over four acres of wooded property. Um, I don't know if you can see that. You see where Lowe's is there. And, uh, and then Yelm Highway is just below that. So if you turn off of Yelm Highway there and Corporate Center Road, and then left on Intelco Loop, there it is up there at the top and um, in yellow at the to the left side at the back of the property is the Chehalis Western Trail. Um, and then there's the, the at the top of the uh, photo there is a housing development. And anybody know what it's called? It's called the point with an E <laughs> but this is this property we we had our eyes on a few years ago, and we were in no position to do anything and I remember walking that property and just saying lord if if this could be ours, I would say amen to that and uh, so would you would you provide in your way your time the right piece of property but but we, several of us actually have walked that property and um, we thought that it had been sold. We thought that it was gone and, and it had gone under contract. Um, it, it, the buyer couldn't do what they wanted to do there and so it came back on the market and, uh, um, God has blessed us with the, the ability to purchase this property. As you can see on your insert there, $410,000 is the purchase price. The assessed value is 651000 So it's almost a quarter of a million under the assessed value and well within what you pledged toward Vision Next last March. And so let me just let you know where we are now on Vision Next in, in terms of the, the, the finances that have come in. Uh, our treasurer has told me that by the end of March, which will be the one-year mark, uh, we'll be somewhere in the ballpark of $200,000 that's come in, actual dollars that have come in. And we have, we've been uh, just on a periodic basis as money has come in, putting that into interest-bearing notes with the uh, Converge Northwest Growth Church Growth Fund, which is a, a financial kind of entity within our uh, northwest district of the network that we're part of called Converge. And um, they will be the people from whom we'll be seeking a loan. And they exist simply for the purpose of helping churches like ours do what God is calling us to do. And so we're under a contract now um, for up to six months to complete feasibility studies and all of that and secure that loan. And so there are some ways to pray there. Pray that that, that God will move the city of Lacey to approve our application for a conditional use permit to be able to build a church on that property. The people we've talked to thus far who will be in the decision-making process have said they don't see a a problem with that. So we're excited about that. Pray that we'll be able to secure that financing and pray for God's provision uh, for those who have pledged financial support uh, to Vision Next. So here's my thought, and you can slap me if you want, but here's my thought. God God has provided nearly $200,000 as where we are today uh, towards this fund. What if a year from now, we could knock out our indebtedness on this property and and be able to move forward with breaking ground and, and doing the development and so forth. And how exciting would that be? So pray about that. Pray how pray about how God would have you uh, be involved in, in what your personal investment might be to Vision Next over the coming year. And uh, we will schedule as soon as the, the weather... Is a little less sloppy. We will schedule a time for all of us to go out there as a church family and walk the property and pray over it. So praise God. Praise God. Amen. Good stuff. Good stuff. So thankful that we have uh, people in our church that have good heads for this stuff. I'm not one of them. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful that God has put people like this in our church who can, can help and, and make a difference in this way. Well, we are in Romans. We will be in Romans now for the good part of this year. And, uh, this morning we've come to Romans chapter 3, 1 through 20. Uh, it's a long passage, but it's a complete thought. And so we're gonna, we're gonna tackle it together this morning. Would you stand again and let's read our scripture for this morning. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteous God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, this is God's word. You may be seated. Well, if you've uh, if you've been here for the last few sessions, you know that that Paul has been progressively eliminating any claim anyone might have for being declared righteous in God's sight. Uh, these first three chapters make uncomfortable reading, don't they? Um, for three kinds of people that he has either described or or directly addressed. First of all, the the godless in chapter one, the immoral godless uh, in chapter first part of chapter two, the the critical moralist, and then uh, in the latter part of chapter two, the religionist, the person who trusts in their religion for their right standing before God. Yeah, I've been thinking about. These three this week, just in terms of my own experience, because I have been and and uh, apart from Christ, am all three of those. Um, I, I'm the 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 uh, the the godless, the promiscuous, the all of that. Have been that, have a history of that. God saved me from that, uh, but I'm still a sinner. And, and the and the the uh, the godless person is the sick, is the one that just blows it all off and says. <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'm going to live my life, take my chances. And, you know, if God doesn't accept me, well, so be it. And they just kind of blow it off. The, the critical moralist is the person who thinks that God judges on a curve, you know, instead of against an absolute righteous standard that says, well, I'm, I may not be the worst person in the world, but you should meet my next-door neighbor. And, and I'm at least better than that person. And so I've got a better chance than he or she. To uh, to make it into heaven, and on balance, I think I'm a pretty good person, and God better God better got to just better understand that. And the religionist, of course, is the person that says, "Well, I'm religious. I was uh, for the Jew. They would say I was circumcised the eighth day of my life. I've attended synagogue my whole life. I've tried to keep the law. Uh, I've I've observed all of that. Observed all the feasts and all the festivals, and uh, given to the poor. I've I've just done all of that." Or the Christian who says, Well, I've I was baptized in the church and I'm a member of the church and I I, I take communion each week or the Eucharist or the Mass or whatever your tradition has called it. And so God's God's gotta accept me. I'm part of the family. When I was baptized as a baby, I was included in the family of God, and so I'm in, right? That's the religionist. That's the one that says, because of my religion, because of who I am, because of what I do, of a religious nature, God's got to include me. Well, verses one to eight of chapter three that we just read are are really best understood as a Q and A session between Paul and his imagined reader, and we've seen that that's kind of a, a classic style of teaching in the ancient world to set to answer to set up a an answer to a question, or set it up by, by posing the question itself. And so what Paul is doing is he's anticipating and he is answering some objections that he knows he may have provoked by what he has written thus far. And some of these objections may sound at first foreign to us because, uh, let's face it, we don't hear these questions very often, uh, if, if ever, these days. But in fact, uh, as we get into them a little bit, you're going to see that you've probably asked some of these same questions uh, in your day-to-day life. These questions probably reflect, in part, Paul's own struggles uh, in coming to terms with the meaning of the gospel in his own life. They're they're personal for Paul. So I think he really approaches these questions first as a Jew himself and only second as as an apostle and an evangelist. Remember that Paul was a kind of a surprise convert to faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. And he was converted from a lifetime of hardcore Judaism. So he had to wrestle certainly through these things uh, as he now understood that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was the long-awaited and promised Messiah. And so he had to rearrange his whole system, as it were, uh, taking the name of Jesus and putting it into those, those blanks <laughs> and saying, Okay. Now I'm beginning to understand. So in these first eight verses, what Paul is doing is that, first of all, he's reasoning against misunderstandings of the gospel. So he's, he's, he's well, providing rational responses to misunderstandings, and then he's defending against misrepresentations of his own teaching uh, that, that are cropping up in the church. So think of it as Kind of an institute in basic Jewish conflicts. So there's four questions here, four answers. And, and they kind of represent, as we're, as Paul is winding down his, his opening argument here in Romans, uh, these are kind of the final sputters of his Jewish readers. So follow along with me. Verses one and two. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And, and this is the religionist speaking. Okay? I'm a I'm Jewish, that's my identity. I was born Jewish. I'm a part of the part of Judaism, and and I and I've been circumcised. I was circumcised on the eighth day of my life, so I'm trusting in those things. What advantage, Paul, do you think there is in any of that? And Paul says, first of all, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And that phrase, to begin with, you think well. Paul's starting into some kind of list. Maybe maybe he got distracted. But the first thing he points to is that the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul, are you saying that there's no advantage to being a Jew? And Paul says, no, I'm not saying that entirely. There is great value in being a Jew, but the value is not what you have thought that it is. The value is in the responsibility of being a Jew, not the security of being a Jew. God entrusted to the Jews the oracles of God, making them the stewards of God's revelation, as it were, a privilege and a responsibility that wasn't given to other nations. That's really revealed there in Psalm 147, 19 to 20. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. And if if we understand the Old Testament right in regard to what God expected of the Jews, of the Hebrew people, it was this, that they would be a light to the nations, that they would be witnesses to God's power and his majesty and his might and his ability to deliver. And that was why they were entrusted with the law. Verses 3 and 4, let's go on. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God. In other words, some some didn't believe so is the problem with God? Is God unfaithful because the Jews have been unfaithful and there's a sense that they're equating the, the faithlessness of Israel with somehow a faithlessness, on the part of God. What's happened to the promises? If God's people are unfaithful, does that necessarily mean that he is, in essence, blaming God for their own unfaithfulness? And, and, and Paul says, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. In other words, despite God's people's failure to believe, God's people's failure to to obey, to be faithful to the covenant, God's promises to save the world are continuing. So Israel opted out in large part. He says, no, it's continuing on. Our faithlessness only reveals how faithful and committed to his truth and his promises he is. Think about everything you put up with Israel with you in order, to put a, in order to be true to his promises. Think of everything he puts up with you, Christian, you know, in order to be faithful to you. He's quoting there in the latter part of verse 4, he's quoting Psalm 51, 4, Against you, you only have I sinned, done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict. You are justified when you judge. And Paul says, no, God is always, always, always faithful. Verses 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, in other words, if our wrongdoing only serves to highlight and confirm his right doing, what shall we say? How is it fair for him to judge us? Are we saying that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul says, I speak in a human way because that would be a blasphemous thought. And he says, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? How could he judge the world? Um, And we, that is, Paul and religious Jews and just about everything, everybody else, all agree that God should judge the unrighteous. Think about that moment when on the freeway when you got the ticket, when the guy who went by you as you were being pulled over was doing ninety. You go, but what about that guy? Why aren't you why aren't you Pulling over real criminals. I got news for you. He did. He pulled you over. You're a real criminal. If unrighteousness is necessary for God's righteous, righteousness to be seen, if our wrongdoing only serves to highlight and confirm his right doing, how is it fair? Paul said, oh, you going to have to think about that yourself. Verses 7 and 8. But if through my lies, and this is the next step, if through my lie, in other words, I'm a liar, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? In other words, if my, if my being so bad makes him look so good, why doesn't he just let me off the hook? Because I'm making him look good. And Paul says, in essence, I've been accused of thinking this and I certainly don't. And saying you're sinning so that God will love you is an attitude that is absolutely worthy of judgment. He says, uh, their condemnation is just, which paraphrased is to hell with them. He says it's not even worthy of a response. Romans 6, which we will see in a matter of Weeks or months, I'm not sure which. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? So you're going to pick up that theme in chapter 6 and really develop it. So he comes to this conclusion now in verse 9. And it's the pivot point where he says, All are under sin. All are under sin. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Some biblical scholars have said, whereas the Jews asked the question earlier, what advantage has the Jew that this could be this could be translated, are we Jews at a disadvantage? Either way you interpret that, the answer is the same. No, not at all, for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So he's coming to the end of this lengthy argument that began at verse 18 of chapter 1, and he's revealed the blatant unrighteousness of the godless uh, godless in chapter 1. He's addressed the hypocritical self-righteousness of the critical moralizers in chapter 2, and he's exposed the overconfident self-righteousness of the the religious in the latter part of chapter 2 and the early part of chapter 3. So now we arrive at the point to which Paul has been leading us all along And he indicts the entire human race. The conclusion is, everyone, everyone, everyone is under sin. There is no one righteous, verse 10. To be under sin, to be unrighteous are the same thing. Righteousness, this is an important point. Righteousness and unrighteousness are positional terms. They have to do with our Legal standing before God. If we're unrighteous, it means we do not stand in a right relationship with God or others. For the simple reason that we have wronged God, we have offended God, we have wronged others. To be under sin is a legal expression as well. Imagine that, if you will, that sin is a nation. Sin's a nation. It's a country. and We're citizens of it. And it's, it's as if that, uh, it's as though we all have a spiritual passport, which shows, reveals our legal citizenship. And that passport is either stamped under sin or under grace. And Paul's astounding statement is that Jews and Gentiles, religious and unreligious, are all, all under sin the godless person who lives a life of deep immorality, shameful behavior, who fits every description of chapter 1, the conscientious yet critical moralist of chapter 2, and the religionist are all alike under sin. How do we understand this? Imagine with me that three people are trying to swim, let's say, from Hawaii to Japan. That's a little ways. The first one can't really swim at all. And so once he gets out and he's over his head, he drowns. The next one is a weak swimmer. And so he flounders maybe 60 feet, you know, not really able to do it, splashing more water than moving it. He sinks and he drowns. The third is a very strong swimmer. He's a, a champion, an Olympic swimmer. And he swims with great form and great technique for a long, long time. But after 30 miles, he's struggling. And at about 40 miles, he begins to sink. And at 50 miles, he drowns. And he's dead. So here's the question. Is one more drowned than the others? No. It doesn't matter at all which one swam further. Each one set out on a quest that he or she could never complete. None of them arrived anywhere near Japan, and each one ends as dead as the others. So in the same way, the the godless pagan may indulge in sensuality, the moralist may trust in his morality, the religionist may rely on his religiosity, and not one of them comes close to the righteousness God requires. Each one is equally lost, and each one is equally destined to perish. We are all, all under sin. That's what Paul wants us to understand. So at verse 10 and following through verse 18, he describes the pervasive effects of sin. And Why does he do this? I, I think he does this because we, not only do we need to accept that we're sinners, But we need also to begin to grasp the problem of the reality of our sinfulness. And Paul provides layer after layer of evidence so that we see in stark terms who we are and what this means for us. I've often said that the most mature Christians are the most humble Christians. They're not the proud and arrogant ones, not the brash ones. The most mature Christians are the most humble Christians because they've come to the realization that they are sinful in every way and have no claim at all to the the favor of God except through the blood of Jesus Christ. Book ending verses 10 to 18 are, are two statements. I want you to notice these with me for just a moment. Verse 11, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. And then at verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No one seeks God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. The problem is sin is a problem with God. John Stott wrote that sin is the revolt of the self against God, the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification, the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. So Paul wants us to understand that sin affects every aspect of our humanity. Uh, I heard someone say one time, well, I may not be perfect, but parts of me are excellent. Paul would say in relation to sin, there isn't any part of you that's excellent. Every part of you is sinful. Every aspect of your humanity, every faculty, every function, including your mind and your emotions, your sexuality, your conscience, your will. The pervasiveness of sin is what theologians have referred to as the doctrine of depravity. Have you heard that term? The doctrine of depravity? And a theologian named J.I. Packer wrote that the doctrine doesn't necessarily assert that we're as bad in every way as we could be but instead that none of us is in any way as good as we should be. We're not as bad in every way as we could be. We're just not as good in any way as we should be. There is no part of us that merits God's favor. In spite of the fact that you may not struggle with certain sins and in a manner that's equal to the way others struggle with them, that they sin differently from you, there is nevertheless no part of you, no part of your being that sin has not touched. If I could put that another way, I wouldn't put it another way. Sin is universal in nature. Sin is universal in nature. There's never been any human, with the exception of one, who could persevere against the temptation to sin and therefore stand up to God's judgment. So let's examine seven specific effects of sin that Paul points to in verses 10 to 18. First of all, he says at verse 10 that sin dictates our legal standing. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And and Paul is echoing Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, where, where Solomon wrote, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, not a single one. first part of verse 11, he tells us that sin darkens our intellects. And boy, is this important for us to understand. He says no one understands. No one understands. And to the church at Ephesus, Paul wrote regarding the godless, he says they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to Their hardness of heart. Now notice what he's saying. He's he's saying that ignorance doesn't cause the hardness of heart. Instead, the hardness darkens our understanding. The hardness causes the ignorance. The darkness, or the hardness, darkens our spiritual perception. How important is that when you're sitting in a classroom? A high school classroom, for, for example, and you're hearing your teacher say things that you go, that doesn't ring true with what I understand from God's word. Or you're sitting in a college classroom and someone is maligning your faith. Why are they ignorant? Why are they, where are they coming from? They're coming not just from ignorance; they're coming from a hardness of heart. Our sinful. Self-centeredness leads us to filter out a lot of reality. It's a form of denial. We're blind to essential truth. So sin renders us unable to process or even accept truth. Sometimes you'll say about a friend of yours whom you're trying to share your faith with and you're just wondering, why don't they get this? Jesus said that the world cannot receive the spirit of truth because it neither sees him nor Knows him. More on that in a moment. Latter part of verse eleven, he says sin affects our motives, our base motives. He says, No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. And in that we, we need to understand that none of us really wants to find God. That that we are running and we are hiding from him in everything we do, even in even in our religion, even in our morality. And again, more on that in just a few minutes. But remember that the first thing Adam and Eve did when they sinned in the garden, they covered themselves so that they couldn't be seen by each other. And then they hid so that they couldn't be seen by God. And that running and that hiding continues today. Verse 12, sin corrupts our wills. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Here he's echoing Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that is, Messiah Jesus, the iniquity of us all. See, there's a willfulness about our wandering. It's not accidental. So sin can be defined as our demand for self-determination, for the right to choose our own paths, which, according to Romans 1, God is willing to allow us. In Romans three thirteen to 14, sin taints our tongues, it taints our tongues. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And by the way, should have mentioned this earlier, Paul is just stringing together a whole bunch of Old Testament sayings. So he says here that we're deceitful, we're poisonous, we're bitter, we're cursing in what we say. The image is, is, is of a grave with rotting bodies inside. The sinful words are a sign of internal decay. We use our tongues to lie, to protect our own interests, to damage the interests of others. Jesus said, How can you speak good when you are evil? How can good things come out of your mouth when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Listen to someone long enough and you'll find out what's in their heart. Sin ruins our relationships. Verses 15 to 17, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, in the way of peace they have not known. This is how sin affects our relationships. We are after each other's blood, sometimes literally. More often in in seeking to push down those who get in the way of our objectives, of our purposes, of our goals and our ambitions, why do we become angry with people? Because they've blocked us from access to an idol. They've compromised our comfort. They've prevented a promotion. They've made us feel out of control. Or they're enjoying a relationship we feel we need. The list can go on. And here's what I think is the heart of it, that when you and I, have not entered into God's God's approval through Christ, through the gospel, we do not, we will not, we cannot experience and enjoy genuine peace within ourselves. The conflict that we experience with others is simply reflective of the inner conflict of our own hearts and our own minds, our own souls, so that as much as we would like to, as much as we would idealize this, we can't achieve and experience comprehensive peace in our relationships. Finally, at verse 18, Paul says, Sin separates us from God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. After I finished the PowerPoint and finished your study guide, (laughs) your notes, I thought the way I should have stated this is that sin diminishes our concept of God. There's no fear of God. There's no reverence of God. We don't reverence Him because we have spelled His name with a little g instead of a big G. It's a detailed, depressing list. It also contains what I think are two particularly surprising claims and a striking conclusion. Paul claims that no one seeks God, that no one does good. No fear of God, then, is a summary, a culmination of the ultimate effect of sin on us. Someone once said that sin will take you further than you ever wanted to stray, keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. At verses 19 to 20, Paul arrives at his conclusion, and he offers this summary. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Let me just pause right there. So we talked about this last week, the law. For the Jew, the law is the law of Moses, that, that extremely elaborate, extremely detailed codex of laws that, that we read in Exodus, Leviticus numbers, Deuteronomy. For the Gentile the law is the law of conscience. And Paul says in essence and where we were last week, you think the the law of Moses is hard, you can't even submit to your own conscience. You don't even keep your own conscience. And he says that that's a basis for God's judgment all by itself. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Notice here, no one seeks God. I said we'd come back to that. Here we are this statement and the one we just observed, there's no fear of God before their eyes, point to the predicament of our sin, but also point to God's provision for that predicament. And some people might ask, hey, come on, isn't that that really an extreme conclusion that no one seeks God? What's up with that? I mean, I, I know many people who aren't Christians who maybe don't go to church, but but they pray, and, and they think hard. They've got good minds. They're searching profoundly for truth. And then there are people in other religions, too. And after all, after all, God, God accepted me. I was once a seeker. I found him. So why is what Paul asserts here true? Because you look at that and you go, yeah, 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 maybe, that's that's possible. But Paul says something quite different. So so why is what Paul asserts true? Why can't it be said that those who might describe themselves as seekers are actually seeking God? First, let's define terms. I think, reading this, The seeking after God ought to be understood in its simple, obvious meaning. Okay, you with me on that? It's a desire to know the true God, to find him, enjoy him, a desire to worship, appreciate, and rejoice in him for who he is. So let's notice what Paul is not saying Paul is not saying that no one speaks or seeks spiritual blessings. He is not saying that no one seeks God's provision. He's not saying that no one is seeking spiritual power or spiritual experiences or spiritual peace. He's not saying these things because many, many people do them. But notice by contrast what he is saying. That no one, prompted by their own decision and acting in their own ability, wants to find God himself. Think about it. Someone might have an intellectual interest in the possibility that there is a God. Another may have a philosophical conviction that God exists. But neither of those things constitute a genuine passion to have a real personal relationship with God. In fact, it's possible, isn't it, that each of those can be a way of avoiding meeting the real God? If we can keep God in the realm of intellectual argument, if we can keep God in the realm of philosophical speculation... we can keep ourselves from having to deal with the objective reality of the true God. Paul wrote to Timothy about people who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So we just kind of keep God out there. Or consider that someone might have a problem in their lives and realize that they need forgiveness to deal with their guilt. Or they need spiritual peace to deal with their anxiety or power or wisdom to be able to know how to move forward in their life, or a mystical experience to deal with, you know, that supernatural mystical religious experience, to deal with the emptiness that they feel in their lives. But none of those things, none of them is the same as truly seeking to know and to be known by the holy, living, sovereign, relational God. It's seeking what God can give us, what God can provide for us, but not seeking him. And Paul is saying that at the core of what we call spiritual searching, what people have referred to as man's quest for God, is in fact a sinful self-centeredness. And as a result, we're simply trying to get blessings from God, keeping control of our lives, ourselves, and expecting or even demanding that God serve us, that God shape himself to meet our needs. We neither desire nor intend to bow down before the living God, to surrender control of our lives and our futures to him. But what the Bible describes as, as seeking God has as its goal to enjoy him for who he is, to experience his blessings in a submissive relationship. With him. To seek God is to ask him to shape us and use us in his service within his kingdom, not ours. The corollary truth here is that anyone who is truly seeking God has first been sought by God. Jesus himself said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What this means is that anyone, anyone, who is in fact truly searching for God, who's in the process of searching for God, must have already undergone some internal change that's caused them, that's caused by God's Spirit, and not their own. Paul hoped for the ungodly, as he wrote to Timothy, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. See, turning to Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord, accepting the truth about who God is and who we are, are not things that we do so that God will work in us. They are instead works that God does in us. So that we can find him. Hear what I'm saying? You're also quiet. If you're a believer this morning, then as you as you consider your path to finding God, you need to realize that, that you didn't seek him out. He drew you to him, to himself. The impetus, the motivation was not on your end, it was on his. You decided to put your faith in Him only because He had decided in advance to give you the gift of faith. Well, what difference does that make? Let me suggest three differences, three implications, just in closing. The first is this, that you rest, you rest, and you rejoice. You celebrate the truth that God is not hiding from you, but that everything that you know about Him, he has chosen to reveal to you. First Corinthians 4.7, Paul wrote, What do you have that you didn't receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it, as if it came from you in the first place? Secondly, you are comforted, you are confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion, Until the day of Christ Jesus. That he didn't start something that he didn't intend to finish. What he began in you, he will perfect progressively until the day that you stand before God. And third, you worship God. You praise God with much greater gratitude because you know that absolutely everything about your salvation comes from him from first to last. That your salvation didn't begin with you deciding to seek Him, but with Him choosing to seek you, to pursue you, to apprehend you by His grace and by His love. And you know that everything you have, everything you are, is a gift of His sheer grace. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that it speaks down to where we live, even in those moments when we think, what is this passage saying at all? Lord, we stand accountable before you because while we may not be as bad in every way as we could be, we are not as good in any way as we should be. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely as a gift of grace that you give to us through Jesus Christ. And so Lord, let none of us be found neglecting so great the salvation. Nor do we don't want to leave it behind, we don't want to ignore it. We want to celebrate it and receive it. Thank you that you love us, that you chose to seek us because of that great love. Thank you for your mercy toward us that you didn't treat us as our sins deserved, but you treat us by grace, giving us all the riches of Christ that we don't deserve as we simply trust in him. Lord, continue to teach us from this great letter of Paul's to the Romans. And by your spirit, Lord, make us into the people you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.